Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are still recording podcast. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As always, I'm joined by our non-playoff panelists, Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. Gentlemen, how has your fall been? I found new and exciting things to do. I've been watching some good baseball, been coaching a lot. I've been finding everything to do except think about this team. Uh, so I'm glad that this is kind of our final one to kind of wrap up our first full season back doing this. I think it's a fun exercise and uh, I'm excited for a little bit of a break. I'll be completely honest with you. Not that I, not that I won't miss you guys, but not I won't miss you that much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely I think, a successful first um, full season for our podcast. But at the same time, yeah, it's it's tough talking about this team over and over which is why i'm excited not to spoil about the format of today's episode which we'll get to later but i've been good for sure i mean i think i think i said the last episode but these playoff games have been really fun to watch at least the ones that i've caught so i've been enjoying that but overall doing pretty good yeah i mean jordan i feel like it was a pretty good disqualifier once you said you've been watching good baseball that you obviously weren't watching white Sox baseball so <laughs> glad you uh i'm glad you cleared that up for the people at home um, I think it's really nice to see Rob Manfred go back to being the most embarrassing part about Major League Baseball instead of the Chicago White Sox for a little bit. So that's been really cool to see. But genuinely, like what an awesome playoff so far. Like you see the Dodgers go out. Um, Arizona is making like this this type of run. You know, is it going to run out of gas here? You know, we're going to see. Um, I think it's absolutely awesome what Bruce Bochy and the Rangers are doing right now as well. Um, you know, I will bring up Bruce Bochy in this podcast at some point because I feel like it's going to be very relevant. And uh, Laz, I really don't care about your opinion on that, but I'm going <laughs> to bring it up anyway. Um, but anyway, we have uh, we have quite a bit to cover in the episode. Uh, you know, like like you like you guys said, um, we're going to be closing it out here. Uh, it was a, it was a pretty fun first season um, doing this, not in so much watching the team and, uh, your guys' support's been really awesome. I know I said it at the end of the last episode, but it is really cool to see what we've done in year one. I can't wait to see what we do next season, but, um, before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else to get your podcast. Also be sure to check out the website, SoxOn35th.com. That includes the off season. I'm sure we're going to have plenty of cool stuff. Um, even some of the stuff we cover today, we might end up making that into hopefully like a collaboration to kind of see how everybody feels about what this recent um recent build of the chicago white Sox was um but be sure to also follow us on facebook twitter and instagram at socks on 35th so i will give a little bit of a rundown about what we're going to cover today um jordan this is your idea it's actually it's a great idea i think we all can all agree about that that's uh the most hype i'm going to give you for the rest of this episode um Basically, we had talked about this. Jeez, I feel like we were only like a couple episodes in when we kind of like hatched yeah. this plan. And basically what we want to do is we want to throw it back to November of 2020. Um, pretty big off season for the White Sox. You know, we we ended up firing Rick Renteria. Um, there were some mixed it's kind of a mixed bag thing, but I'll always stand on the uh, I'll always die on the hill that it was the right move. Um, hiring who he did. That's an entirely different discussion. Um, but basically, we're going to cover 
how we got to where we are, maybe some things we would have done different, um, some crucial points um, that really kind of changed the trajectory of this team, um, and you know, including some moves that you know, while they may have looked really good at the time, and maybe they're tr- something we wouldn't take back. Maybe not the best idea in the long term window of this team, where we could have really, uh, we we could still be rolling right now. So it's it really is a shame some of the things that we ended up doing, uh, but Jordan, I'll let you kind of take the run here, um, kind kind of break down what we uh, what we're going to be discussing today. Yeah, and I'll also give credit to Nick because it was Nick originally who talked about you know going on MLB the Show and kind of recreating your franchise there. Basically, we sat down and said, "Hey, what if we did that on a podcast?" And we said, "Okay, November twenty twenty was when the first of the dominoes fell. Could you, obviously given the benefit of hindsight, what would you go back and do differently? How would you build this team differently? Sure, we picked specific players we talked about. Maybe we'd sign this player or this player. Um, But I think in general, there were also just trends. Hey, we wouldn't do this. We wouldn't do that. Or we would do this. Basically trying to get to a point where at the end of 2023, like Duke had mentioned, we're not talking about this episode marking the end of this rebuild era and now heading into something new with a new GM and a very uncertain future. Basically, how could we have prevented this? Of course, with the benefit of hindsight. Um, But I, I do even think that, and I won't spoil too much, I do think that even without the benefit of hindsight, there were some things I think a lot of people were saying a lot, a lot during this rebuild this contention window quote unquote that ended up coming to fruition and i'm curious to see what everyone thinks but at the end of the day wanted to look back and basically say hey if we could turn back time and do this differently what would we do and hopefully the white Sox are doing that themselves at the same time yeah no doubt and then nick um i i do agree with jordan i want to give you a lot of credit on this um it was back in a time when playing the show was still a little enjoyable. I like, I don't know about you guys, but like it, any sports game I play yearly, once my team starts kind of falling out of it, I lose interest pretty quick. I get two months out of most sports games, to be honest with you. Like I'll go hard on it those first two months. And I'm like, I don't touch it until I inevitably buy the next one. Yeah. Th- this one in particular too. I think, I think it was my idea just for the whole, like, look back at it. I think it was Jordan who kind of said let's do it on a podcast and like came up with the rules and everything but I think it was during the 10 game losing streak in April when I was doing my franchise with the real White Sox and I was like this team just is not fun to play with or watch in real life so that's why I just destroyed it all and did this like alternate universe team so, so that's kind of what it was but for sure I think I probably stopped playing that game in like June which is very early for me usually I played into August or September but not this year. And we did put some rules on all of this. We did say, you know, hey, don't turn around and sign guys to like 10-year deals or $100 million contracts. Like, don't pick those guys because that was never realistic in the first place. We did our best to put those sort of White Sox self-imposed rules on it. But still, I think for all of us, come to a team that we can at least argue looks better on paper and looks better in terms of results than obviously what happened to this team. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think before we even get into the players, cause 
the the biggest thing and you know we've talked about this numerous times off the podcast you know we didn't we didn't want to like turn into one of these people that constantly relived like the Bryce Harper Manny Machado sweepstakes you know every White Sox fan has an opinion on that and we will we'll just beat our head against the wall you know in, in a sweepstakes that we probably weren't in so I'm glad we're not going that far back because it would just turn into a it would turn into that for the entire episode. So before we even get into like players or personnel or anything like that, the obvious elephant in the room is the Tony Larusa hire. How that was handled, um, whether there was truly a manager search, whether that was somebody that Jerry, you know, kind of honed in on, which is kind of really seems like how it was. Um there was opinions up and down all over the baseball world about that, about that hire. Um, obviously anybody with any sort of St. Louis Cardinals roots, were going to try to defend it. They were going to try to give, you know, LaRusse his flowers to, you know, give him this one last shot, especially with a, a roster that looked like it was ready to win. Um, and then, you know, you obviously had the other side of it where it's like, this guy hasn't managed in how long, like, are we really going to try to replicate, you know, something from the past when there are just so many available managers, including a manager who ended up getting hired to Detroit, who everybody was really high on. I wasn't as high on, but regardless, um, Nick, I'll let you go ahead and jump on this. Tony LaRusso hire. Would you have done it the same? I feel like I already know the answer. And um, if you were the White Sox, who, what are a name, what's a name or two, or unless you have like that set name that you would have hired in this position. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting discussion, and I'm excited to hear who you guys also picked, although I'm pretty sure I know who Duke picked. But anyway, uh, I tried really hard for this whole exercise, not just for the manager, but also for the players, to not use hindsight, in that I tried hard to do what I actually would have wanted to do in the moment. And basically, the White Sox, aside from like one signing, never really did what I wanted them to do. So... This name might be a little out of left field because he still hasn't been hired as a manager for whatever reason. But during that search, and I mean, it wasn't really a search now that we know what we know. But during that process, the guy I wanted was Joe Espada of the Astros because I just love the background of someone who came from winning organizations and seemed to have an analytical mindset. Uh, was noted for good communication with players. I believe bilingual, so could speak to the whole roster. I thought that was all great. And as of you know, this recording in 2023, he's been interviewed for a manager job. I don't even know how many times and still hasn't been hired away from the Astros. So I don't know if there's something about him that the public just doesn't know or if teams just for whatever reason always have him as like a second choice. But that's who I would have picked. And the spoiler alert is that he is not my manager at the end of this exercise, but he is for now. And in oh. yeah. <laughs> that's the twist. <laughs> That's fun. Mm-hmm. See, I did. I only partially considered that um, because you're right. I, I think I can probably understand why you did it. There are a lot of appealing names this time around that I felt would have been cheating or this time around, meaning when they hired Rafal, that I feel like would have been cheating had I been like, oh, I wanted them to hire this person back in 2021 when no one was even talking about them being a manager. So I, I think I get why you did that. On my side, I just, I went very simple with this. I was banging the drum for this name. 
apparently Rick Hahn and the graphics department were as well at the time I went with AJ Hinch. I think it was the most obvious answer at that point of get someone who's done it before on a winning team. I know there's all this talk about the Ashers and the cheating, and I get that, but we are talking about a team that's now gone to seven ALCS appearances. At a certain point, it's not the same roster that cheated. This is an organizational thing at a certain point, and I would want someone who at least knows the ins and outs of that. He's done a decent job with some pretty terrible teams in Detroit. I can't put that fully on him in terms of the talent there. And I think the obvious elephant in the room with that is, yeah, his name was on a graphic. Like They were at least that close that the graphics department was told, you know, put two or three people together, and he's one of them. I, I think just looking back at that and really looking into the process that happened and where this team has ended up with so much uncertainty still today around a staff. We talked about this last week, a staff, a manager, a general manager. You could have at least felt like you can weather the storm long-term with Hinch because he's proven what he is as a manager or what he can be as a manager. You couldn't do that with LaRusso. There were so many questions. You couldn't do that now with Rafal. There's still so many questions. With a team with so much inconsistency and so many questions over these past three years, it would have been nice to get that hire right because you could have at least felt you were heading in the right direction and didn't need to worry about who was at the top. You had to figure out the supporting cast. So with like with this search, um, uh, the biggest thing I wanted from the White Sox in this, you know, because I, I, I can admit it, I tried really hard to sell myself on the Tony La Russa hire. Just be, I, I tried so hard. I, I just, I tried to go vintage thinking, you know, I was, I was Googling pictures of him in a White Sox hat from back in the day. I was trying so hard to get fired up for it. I was watching MLB Network, trying to watch any of his former players that would discuss him. But the biggest thing that bugs me to this day about that entire situation was just our lack of going through candidates, our lack of even bringing in like those guys that we're probably not going to hire, but we want to hear somebody come in and talk baseball so we can kind of formulate a plan of what we actually want out of a manager. Like there was a lot of different roads they could have taken. You know, they could have taken the the meatball role which they kind of did, but they could have taken it maybe a little bit of a smarter direction. You know, obviously, you know, and this is someone that'll make everyone's eyes roll, but, I'm, you know, I, and Ozzy Gaines sitting right there in town is actually very close to the team and he actually knows players on the team. So I feel like if you wanted to go all in with the type of Larusa hire that we made, we might as well have hired Ozzy Gaines at that point. See, here's my concern with that, though. And a lot of people say that exact same thing. My concern is that at a certain point, you get too friendly, and now they start walking all over you, and you have the exact same issue where you can't control the clubhouse like you think you can. I don't I don't buy that he knows them so that he is the only person in America who could get, the, get to know these guys so well. I don't know if I like that as much as people make it sound like it's a good thing. Personally, you're not you're not wrong. It's it's the route I didn't want the White Sox to take anyway because like the way I have this broken up is I have it in like three roads. You can take the meatball route and it would be Ozzy Gian, Tony Larusa, 
or the, I think th- like the best you could have went on and it would have been a more unproven choice, but somebody who has stayed close to the game has played in multiple locker rooms and a guy who undoubtedly would not be walked all over. And that would have been AJ Pruszynski. I knew you were going to say AJ. I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'm going to say AJ. So that that's, that's the meatball road. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's kind of where I thought Jerry was going to go was with one of those three. Once I saw how like non- like non-descriptive this freaking search was like, cause I think the only person we interviewed like technically outside of an AJ hinge, who I don't know if we ever even confirmed that he actually interviewed for the position. I knew he had consideration was Willie Harris. Like it, it already seemed like we were trying to go down that road and it, it was just strange. So um, if we were going to go down that road, seeing seeing Ozzy or uh not Ozzy but seeing AJ get a chance as a first time manager that would have been different cuz seeing him you know kind of maneuver around baseball is you know also considering you know one of the most hated players across baseball but also one of the most respected by guys who actually ended up playing with him um it would have had an interesting dynamic whereas like Ozzy we've already you know we've played that game before we already kind of knew where that was going to be then, so the second road, this is the, you know, the analytical road. This is the road where uh, maybe you get a young upstart manager or an AJ Hinch. You know, this is the road that a lot of us want us want him to go. Hinch, you know, like, listen, I don't, I don't care if it's, if it's just about the cheating scandal for me with Hinch. I don't, I, I just, I did not want him. It, it was a guy that I just wasn't totally sold on, and I feel like Houston, the way they built their roster. They had just had such an influx of talent, and they had a, they had an owner who was willing to spend money to bring in more talent. You know, I don't think you trade for a guy like Garrett Cole unless you're like dead serious about actually trying to win a World Series. You know what I mean? And that's something that the White Sox could never imagine to do. And I think uh, that does. I don't think AJ Hinch has a lot to do with stuff like that. So I don't know if he would have had a chance to really succeed here because I don't think we would have gone to that length. You know, and I think we've shown that throughout the course of the years. Um, also, I think a guy like uh, like a Sandy Alomar Jr., who I'm honestly surprised hasn't gotten a managerial spot, um, especially getting the opportunity to learn under Terry Francona for as long as he has. And the guy who's basically trusted anytime Terry wants to walk away from the team or any type of situation that he's the guy in charge, you know, the unquestioned leader in that in that clubhouse for Cleveland and a guy who I don't know what it is about, like former catchers as managers. But, like, they just know the game and just kind of a different level. And I feel like Sandy would have been an interesting pick. Plus, you know, the old White Sox connection. But I I was more on the fact that I think Sandy Alomar is a very smart player. Um, And I think he's going to make a really good manager once he finally gets the opportunity, which is very, very possible with, uh, you know, the Terry Francona situation. And then... You know, I I think, and I hate that there's Sox connections to him too, and it hasn't panned out, but even a Mark Kotze, I feel like uh, the analytical approach, getting him from the A's, um, I thought he's, I thought he had a chance to be a really good upstart manager. Luckily that didn't happen. Now, my number one guy, now this is, this is where we go completely off the rails. It's, it's Bruce Bochy, you know, and this isn't a hindsight 2020 or anything like that. This is a guy who, while people give the old guy argument or the, Oh, he hasn't managed in a couple seasons argument. You know, he was still managing team France. He was still somebody else connected to the game. He didn't leave San Francisco because he just didn't have it. It was because San Francisco was on the downswing and it felt like Bruce didn't really want to, you know, destroy his, you know, career record 
with trying to rebuild San Francisco and it was very obvious it was going to be a long process. And I think, uh, I think you wanted to give another guy an opportunity and I don't think it would have been fair had he held on too long. Um, but I think he's a guy that just demands respect around the entire game. And, you know, if, if we're looking at the way that the white Sox build their rosters, we're, we're always like the gritty, you know, bunch of nobodies in the room with a couple star players sprinkled in. And that's kind of Bruce Bochy's style. You know, the fact that he finally has a roster that's completely built up and down is I think why we're seeing the, the Rangers play as well as they are, because the managerial side of it, yeah, they have absolutely zero issues. It's all about the players going out there and performing. And when you have players that go out there and perform and everything else is taken care of, it makes life a lot easier for the entire clubhouse. So I really think Bochy would have been a just absolute knock it out of the park higher for us. And I think uh, it would have given us that perfect taste of everything we were looking for into or everything Jerry Reinsdorf was looking for in Tony Larusa, except a younger modern example of somebody who's proven they could do it more recently in the modern game, who also accepts current ideas with a good mix of, you know, that kind of that old school mentality. So I really do think that that's where I would have went on that entire situation. I don't disagree. I think, I think it's something where if they were going to go the, older, more proven route of, hey, I've been in the game forever, but I'm also a recent experienced winner. Yeah, Bochi checks those boxes. But in, at the end of the day, it clearly didn't matter one way or another because that, that wasn't what they wanted. They just wanted Larusa, and they had to sell us by XYZ reasons that I kind of just mentioned. Yeah, for sure. I don't dislike either of your choices. I mean... And then Duke, I like I like the breakdown with the three options. I feel if you're gonna go the third route, which the White Sox did, then Boshu would probably be the only guy that I would have liked because he's not like like sure he's old, but that being old isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if you're Larusa and haven't managed in like a decade. That that's when it's getting a little much. For Boshu, it was like you said, much more recent and currently I know I know you are always felt this way, but he's currently proving, like you said, that he could still do it at a high level. So that might not have been my favorite in the moment if you told me that in 2020, but knowing what it could have been, still way better. The Rangers are also kind of that team that, hey, one of us three can ca- probably put the lineups together and, you know, pro- they'll probably be fine. I think you look at it, any three of us, I think, made a better argument for what they wanted in a manager or the process behind picking the manager than what we got. And it really did set the tone for the next three years. Yeah. I mean, the Larusa pill would have been a lot easier to swallow had we done a full search. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's a pretty good consensus with where we're at um, with the managerial situation, you know, the managerial situation. I, obviously, Tony Larusa didn't work out. Um, age did play very much a factor. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Tony Larusa in the past year. He looks like he's aged about 10. So like he, he's definitely a guy that, um, you know, there, there might've been baseball knowledge in there had we got him, you know, fresh from St. Louis, but it was, it was very obvious, you know, taking the executive roles that he did, that he was just not close enough to the game to where he could be as sharp as he once was. And I, I almost felt bad for him because he should have never been put in that situation. He should have never been offered the job in the first place, you know, cause you have a competitive guy, Hall of Famer, one of the greatest managers of all time, getting offered that one last shot with a young roster. It's 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 hard to say no to that. And, I uh, used to think that, and then I changed my mind. 
on that. You didn't have to take the job. You took the job, and the reports that came out, you took the job because you didn't like the way the game had been going, and you wanted to prove that your way was still the correct way. So I, I at the time, I might if I might have felt differently and agreed with you at a time, Duke. I think because of what we've learned since then, I don't have that. That was someone who was stuck in their ways and decided because this worked at one time. I'm going to prove that this is the right way to do it because I don't like what people are doing now. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would have been nice to see what that looked like if he wasn't falling asleep in the dugout, but here we are. <laughs> you never got to look at it cause he was falling asleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I'd be lying though. If uh, I didn't say I got fired up every time he ran out of the dugout a little with a little pep in his step. And it's like, man, he's not going to, he's not going to walk right for like a week. <laughs> yeah, you could never doubt that he loved doing it. It was just, the reasons behind it what were the eventual issues for me. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think it showed to the players and I think the players more had a gripe that the hire happened in the first place more than they had with the guy that actually got hired. All right. So Nick, you have your manager, you have a roster that is seen as one of the more upbeat rosters in all of baseball you're kind of looking at some of the positives. You're looking at some of the negatives with your manager, with your philosophy. How do you build this roster over the course of the next two years? Like what, what are you prioritizing? What types of free agents are you bringing in? What types of trades are you making? Um, are there any trades to go back on that the White Sox made? What does your roster look like over the course of the next two seasons? Yeah. So I'll start with trades because there are only a couple of note. The first big one is of course, there was the day Dunning for Lance Lynn, trade that i'm sure we'll all have thoughts on in my little alternate world i do not make that trade which is not to say that i don't like it now like i think it was a good trade at the time and it still panned out fairly well for the white Sox. but just for my roster construction i didn't make it and one trade that i really wanted to do but didn't and i i, I was saying this even in 2020 it was kind of like my huge like devil's advocate take is i would have looked into trading garrett crochet at that point because i didn't think his value would ever be higher in the sense that you have a guy throwing like 102 out of the bullpen with crazy sliders. And he has clearly, I mean, at the time, starting potential. If a team saw that and thought, wow, this is Randy Johnson 2.0 or something, then see if you could get, you know, like multiple top 100 guys for it. And of course, if you don't, then you keep him and he's still very promising. But I just couldn't think of a trade that was realistic enough because knowing what his value is now, I just didn't want to like fleece some team at the time i probably would have wanted to explore that if i were the white Sox. so just in general trade aside i tried to focus on power uh, surprise surprise i'm always complaining about the lack of power on the team so i would not have signed adam eaton for example as my big outfielder signing of that winter i would have waited out a little bit longer and signed jock peterson that winter um he ended up signing for like one year six million or something crazy low I think the White Sox at one point, it was rumored they, they offered him like two years for 18 or three for 30, something like that. I would have just waited until he accepted that because it was obviously way better than what he ended up getting. And I'm also not saying that in hindsight, I hated the move when it, when it happened. But that's my main offense move for like the first couple of years, just because I feel like lefty power and somewhat of on-base skills is what that team needed. And... Other than that, I'm not doing anything that major that offseason other than signing Liam Hendricks. That was the one move I alluded to earlier that I agreed with at the time. And even though, obviously, he won't pitch next season, like in current day, that that's just life. Like, he was a great pitcher when, when he was here. 
when he was healthy, I should say. And who knows, maybe his time in Chicago was not done in, in real life. But that's kind of the gist of it. I'll get more into specifics when we come back to like the eventual roster. But the the message here is I didn't do anything crazy drastic. I just made smallish moves like they did. And the weakness of my team right now is starting pitching because I, I made the same deal of signing Carlos Rodon for one year, a few million like they did. But, and that was before we knew he was going to be crazy good. So my rotation is only like Giolito, Kopech, Dunning, Cease, and, and Rodon that year. And I also, I guess my one last thing to add, I would not use Kopech the way they did in 2021. I would try to get him way more innings. I still think that had they done that, he'd maybe be looking a lot better right now because they didn't get enough of a base on him. And then his arm and knee and everything started to implode in the years after. So rather than the 70 innings that they gave him in 2021, I would have tried to get that closer to like 110 probably if his body could could have taken that at the time, which means he probably would have started like half half of the year roughly. See, that's going to be where our biggest difference is. How I attacked the pitching side of things. Again, this is all in hindsight. I think your argument there, Nick, about usage on Kopech is the best argument against what I'm about to say. I completely, and kind of kind of like you, I completely focused on offense throughout most of this. <clears throat> I filled in pitching where necessary. I kept the Lance Lynn move. I liked that enough to keep that. What I did was completely eviscerate everything they did in the bullpen. And I just said, I would mix and match and plug and play however possible. So... The deals like Joe Kelly and Kendall Graveman did not happen in my deal. The other way I freed up a ton of money because Keuchel is still sitting around. If you remember, none of us mentioned him, but he's he's still there monetarily. Um, sorry for that PTSD. I moved, because of what's happened, I moved Michael Kopech to become the team's closer, and I never signed Liam Hendricks. That's where I found the rest of the money to make my priority the offense. Because you look back at this team, Pitching's been up and down over the course of this. Pitching was awesome in 2021. I added a guy like Anthony DiSclefani to figure out that fifth row, and I moved Keiko to the bullpen. Like, I just, I said, this guy was an issue the entire time. I'll invest a couple million there. I also signed Jack Peterson. Um, and I didn't make, the other big thing I didn't do, I didn't make the magical Kimbrel trade because I did not want the A.J. Pollock money on my ledger heading into 2022. So I did just everything they did with the bullpen. I just did not do it. And I said, I got back to what I long believed and kind of got talked out of when I saw all the moves, build your bullpen from within. And for a while I changed my tune on that. And I'm going back to where I should have always stayed. Pick a guy here or there, $4 million here, $4 million here, maybe an $8 million every once in a while. Focus on offense, focus on starting pitching because the offense was the biggest problem. I mean, I signed filler guys here or there. The one big move I did do was in the 2022 offseason, I did sign Kyle Schwarber. So I just created a massive team that said I re-signed Jack Peterson that year too because if you remember, he signed like two straight one-year deals with teams. I signed him in 2021 and 2022. And I just said, give me all the lefty power We'll figure out the lineup later and go from there. 
that is how I ended up building it. And the way I found all that money was on the flip side. I just completely disregarded, not completely disregarded the bullpen isn't fair. I just did not do what they did in terms of $8 million here, $9 million there, $13 million here for Hendricks. On a team that spends at the top of the payroll every year, those deals are fine. For a team like the White Sox, when you're talking about, hey, we can't, in our exercise, we couldn't spend more than what the White Sox did in any year. The only way to improve where this team ended up and not spend more money than they did is to take the money out of the bullpen. It is what it is. And it's going to be, I know Duke's going to have some thoughts on how I decided to handle this, but given how Kopech has gone the past three years, I feel that maybe his development ends up differently and he ends up in a be- feeling better about where he's been over the past three years in that sort of role. I might be wrong, but that's how I decided to tackle it. So a few things I want to touch on here, because Nick, you brought up a really polarizing one at the beginning of your argument. And I just want to make sure it doesn't get lost in translation. And that's Lance Lynn trade. You know, I don't think it's any secret that I've been a Lance Lynn guy. You know, I found ways to justify him possibly turning it around. And I still feel like, my idea of him focusing less on the strikeout and trying to become more of a ground ball pitcher would have worked out as he got a little bit older and lost a little bit of his velocity. Um, I will say when we made that trade, I was very much on the Dane Dunning trade or Dane Dunning train per se. Um, you know, I could, I could, I could go to town about how I thought he should have gotten more of an opportunity in that playoff game, but I really don't want to cry over spilled milk on that. Um, but he's he's a guy, he was a young arm, whether he ends up in the bullpen or in the starting rotation, I think uh, you can definitely find a role for him somewhere. Um, when it comes to Michael Kopech, it's really hard because 2020 was a complete wash for him. And that really kind of hurt his development in a lot of ways that we're currently seeing today. Because if if I'm the White Sox in 2020, I probably don't let Kopech touch the majors. Like I I, I want him to just learn. I want him to you know, whether it's pitching simulated game, whether it's him being on the taxi squad, I really don't want him much on the major league roster. So in 2021, he can take a more amplified role. So him losing that year of the development, I think was really big. Um, I, I will defend the Liam signing, you know, to the end of the earth, um, just because it's exactly what we needed at the time. As far as a back end closer, you know, Alex Colomay had only, he'd gotten us as, as far as humanly possible that he, he, possibly could and you see what he did in his career after he left chicago is a pretty good sign of where he was going these are bringing up such fun conversations we all had at the time like everyone was so split on column that's such a funny example duke everyone was so split on him at the time and i was i was aligned with you he had taken it as far as he possibly could have and it was time to move on and again like you're saying i i I understand why people defend i'm not saying hendrix was a bad signing I'm saying if you're trying to fix this team, that's where I'm going to look because the, they didn't have enough leads in 2022 and 2023 to protect for a guy, for a guy like Hendricks. Just the, the offense was not doing enough. So I, th- I, I think I've found ways to maneuver around that as well without really having to worry too much about that money because the Liam signing, I think, was the right move, and I don't think you really had to do much else with the bullpen from there. I think that was the key guy. You just need to really be able to get it to Liam's 
get the ball in Liam's hand in the ninth and I think you're going to be fine. You know, I, I, I always lived with the idea that I looked at his K per nine rate. That was just absolutely blowing his career averages away in his first season, even when he was struggling within that first month that uh, he was always going to turn it around. So that was a guy I always had the utmost confidence in. So, you know, we, we run into the Keiko issue and we just talked about, you know, not making Lance Lynn trade. Well, you know, where do we go with a starting pitcher? So I have a guy here who I've been a big fan of for years. It's very unfortunate who he plays for now, but um, he was coming off a rough season in Cincinnati. He had a rough go in New York when he was a very highly touted guy being brought there. And uh, after 2020, after starting out his Cincinnati red career, he was a pretty, pretty high end prospect or well, not prospect at that point, but a pretty, pretty highly respected player who had kind of a bit of a drop off. And that's Sonny Gray. And I don't think great, we would have really had to give choice. up. I don't think we would have had to give up a ton to get him. And I don't think Minnesota ended up having to give up. I mean, Minnesota waited another year, but I don't think they would have had to, they gave up a ton to get him in the first place. I think that's a guy that would have fit in perfectly in that middle to the back end of the bullpen role. And I, I'm of the idea where we need to have as many pitchers, whether they're in the bullpen or not, that could start a game in a, in a pinch as possible, you know, because we ended up seeing it down the road. You know, and we rolled with a guy like Carlos Rodon going into that year where we really did not know what Carlos Rodon was. You know, I, I, I'm a Carlos Rodon guy to the end of the earth, but he had a rough 2020 and we just genuinely didn't know what we were going to get out of him. So that was a hard guy to be able to depend on. And um, if you don't have a Lance Lynn and you try to roll in with a Dane Dunning as like the five pitcher, having a sunny gray to solidify the middle a little bit kind of allows you to mess around with a Reynaldo Lopez every once in a while, or, you know, if Dane's rolling, then you just let Dane go. Um, and, you know, you have a Michael Kopech where he's shown the potential to show some innings. You could almost have that fifth starter by, uh, by committee almost as crazy as that sounds having a fresh arm in there every once in a while, especially if you don't want to load up innings on a Michael Kopech probably wouldn't have been a terrible idea, you know, and if you have a guy that's just rolling, you, you kind of go with them. Um, and then I know you guys brought up Jack Peterson. This is a name that I really have not heard White Sox fans talk about at all, which is crazy when you consider what he signed for in this offseason. But I'm going to completely go opposite of what you guys said as far as like uh, the outfielder I go and get. And I'm going to go get Hunter Renfro, one year, $3.1 million, who is a very good defensive outfielder, very much a power bat, who would hit absolute rockets on the South side of Chicago playing in that stadium and a guy who um, is very, he, he's almost like a hired gun for a lot of teams these days, as far as uh, getting a power bat who's pretty good in the outfield and would not be any sort of a liability. And he's somebody that I think even if we get to a second contract with him, we're not paying him a, an absolute ton of money. And I think that's where that Lance Lynn money could have ended up going. If we wanted to keep him there long-term and that solves the right field problem. So I, I think uh, I, I think those moves in particular, Sonny Gray, Jock Peterson, or Sonny Gray and Hunter Renfro, makes me feel a lot more confident about us trying to really go in without completely selling the farm to get there. So that's those are the moves in particular I would make. And as far as the starting rotation goes, obviously we see, we saw what Carlos Rodon ended up doing here and his role in the rotation. You know, you have. Dylan Cease, you have Lucas Giolito, then you have a Sonny Gray, and then you have like three, three, four guys that you can mess around as that fifth starter until somebody sticks. And then you put a guy like Reynaldo Lopez, who I wanted in the bullpen really most of his career anyway. 
And um, I think it gives you a lot of options. And that's that's what it that's what it turned into in 2021. We ran out of options quick once anybody got injured. Like we were throwing things at the wall and getting desperate. And uh, I really think we avoid that with those moves. So I'm the only one who still would have traded Dane Dunning away. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, I just, so I guess I viewed it from the perspective of, I guess now in hindsight, in my hindsight, I, I still do the trade a hundred percent. I think it would have waited way too long for Dunning to be anything this good. It, it took him until 2023 to be what I consider good enough to be sort of a rotation arm that that's not going to fit this window where I guess I would hindsight my own hindsight is the two-year extension. Do you necessarily need to give him that? At the time, absolutely. But again, this isn't an at-the-time game anymore. That may be where I go differently, just in hearing your arguments, and maybe change up the money I spend there. But I think I still make that trade at that time because they were so, so desperate for someone to lead that rotation. And there was nobody available at that time at that price. It was $9 million. He made double that on his next contract, obviously. But at that time, you're getting a four-win pitcher for $9 million. That's, that is about as good as you're going to do at the top of rotation. That's the only reason I still probably keep it. But that's an interesting one, though. I, I think that of all of them is probably the one we're split on, right? Okay, so, and I also do think it's important because he already did get brought up, but I mean, obviously the big issue we would run into is because if we're looking strictly at what happened the season before, it's not like we can just trade Dallas Keiko before the season starts. You know what I mean? Like we, we were eventually going to run into that, and I don't think any of us could have seen how quickly it happened and how it was it was monumentally bad how how fast he fell off you know it was almost like i think he had a first good month and a half of 2021 and then he completely fell off a cliff and that's a tough one to maneuver and he's really the one that kind of throws i think all of our like builds off is because of how much money he's worth and you know you kind of have to use that in the context, which is kind of how it played out, that Jerry Reinsdorf isn't going to just try to eat money. He's going to try to make this work as much as he can. So that's that's also, I think, a very good argument as far as having more potential guys that can start spot start here and there. And I think Dane Dunning going into this uh, the next season while addressing the starting pitching rotation, um, it would I think it would have been good to have him in the bullpen for a season anyway. You know, even if it's in that long reliever Jimmy Lambert type role. And then, you know, you could potentially see what you have coming up from there. But my only thing is like Dane Dunning kind of stunk up until 2023. Like he was a mid fours, almost five ERA type guy. That's a serviceable long reliever, though. Like if you're looking for someone to eat in a serviceable long reliever when you need an ace, though, or at least a top number two guy like that. That's kind of how I viewed it. Did we need an ace, though, with Dallas Keiko on the roster? With Lucas G. Leo I, and with potential of what we had seen of Dylan Cease, did we need that? Because honestly, Lance, I would lay, I would pencil Lancelin in to that starting rotation to start the season. Well, think about it. So, so twenty twenty one, Cease still isn't an ace yet. Cease still doesn't know where the strike zone is. Um, 
He still doesn't know where strike zone is today, but he certainly didn't know where home plate was heading into 2021. You had Lucas Giolito. You had Dallas Keuchel, who I think, I, I think it's fair. I think the argument, it was a three-year deal, but I think we all knew soft-tossing left-hander, that could go south as quickly as it did. I put Lynn in front of Keuchel to start that year, 100%, because of just how how easy it is for a guy like Keuchel to just fall off a cliff and not really get a good answer for it. But after those two guys, even if you, no matter where you put it, I, I don't, hmm. You say, so when you trade for Sonny Gray, you do that before 2022. I don't know. I think, I don't, I, uh, well, I have to agree to disagree. I just don't think I can justify saying, hey, a serviceable long reliever is more important to that 2021 White Sox team than a number two guy who ended up almost being the ace. I think that Sonny Gray trade could get pulled off after 2020 because I feel like Cincinnati was already kind of falling apart. And I think his name had been brought up in the offseason quite a bit before that. And I I really think that answers the question of more like that mid-tier starter because I feel like if we don't get too aggressive with that, obviously it didn't pan out with Dallas Keuchel, but, you know, like hindsight's fine. I hate Dallas Keuchel as much as anybody on the planet. I think he is just a, a freaking worthless slob and he needs to shave his beard because he is not that guy. Um, but he was he put up like a Cy Young level year for us in 2020. Like we he was our he was our one of our top two guys. I don't think there was any question about that. I'm pretty sure to start that season, uh, Lynn was the third starter. I, I, I can't speak fully from that. Well, Keiko was a top two guy by default. The season before, it was Giolito and Keiko. That was the rotation. That's why That's why poor Ricky had the debacle in game three, because Cease wasn't really a starter. Dunning really wasn't a starter. And then you look down the bench, you're like, I guess Rodon's a starter at that point, because he wasn't at that point either, because he was hurt. He was the deep number two by default, not necessarily because he was good. I, I guess I guess just the biggest thing I would say with Lance Lynn trade. It's crazy that I'm I'm talking about Lance Lynn like this because I am a really big Lance Lynn guy, even even to this day. This is I think this is the fun of this exercise, though. Um, I I just I think even you, you look at it beforehand, you have a G Lito and you have a Keiko, and then you look at it after the fact, and honestly, a Rodon ended up passing him by anyway Rodon was easily their most impressive pitcher I think in mm-hmm. 2021 yes uh, genuinely when he when he was healthy I don't think there was a better guy you could have on the hill that was just the entire problem of it was was the health and I, I do also want to point out that obviously I'm signing Carlos Rodon to that qualifying offer that that is one that nobody mentioned that and I'm surprised none of us three mentioned that but I think we all agree he gets off yeah that. for sure I wouldn't come back to it to be fair but yeah for it, sure. that stings that one really stings because you look at what we could have used in the rotation in 2022 and what he did in San Francisco and you're like wow even even you know what Carlos can still go get paid by the Yankees at that point that's fine that qualifying offer would have looked like the best deal in baseball that it was it, it, it was it was rough Agreed. um yeah. but Nick Please do let us know who the second manager is because I am actually kind of intrigued. Yeah, so a few things to address from what changes from my team year over year. First of all, on the uh, before I go to the manager because this happened first, I just forgot to say it. I I wouldn't do the Madrigal for Kimbrel trade necessarily, but I would trade Madrigal for 
somebody Pro- probably based on the way my team's set up probably relievers honestly so yeah i should mention that as well i kind of i said i wouldn't make the trade and then like if you look at my roster where i put it all out he kind of just disappears i don't know where he went on my team i just know he was the second baseman one year and then he's nowhere to be found um so sorry go ahead no, no, you're good. Yeah, so ba- basically just assume I traded him for a couple competent like middle relievers with a few years of control each. I, I would have traded him as soon as I-, I got the chance. I would have never made the pick, but that's another <laughs> another debate. Um, getting back to... Well, actually, I never even said what I replaced him with. I, I would have... Here's a name we actually haven't talked about at all. He signed for like $7 million a year, and for the last two years, he's been a top 20 player in baseball by Fangraphs 4, and that is Ha Sung Kim of the Padres. I just think he would have fit in really well with this team because he's a very good defender, second base and shortstop when Tim gets hurt. And he also, just the way he plays, he plays the way that the South side wants a player to play with just so much energy and always just going completely all out. And I'm, these are usually things you say about a player who's like not that good, but he's also really good. Like, like I said, he's top 20 in war for the last two years. And that's both talking about the fact that he's above average on offense. He takes his walks and also just a great defender. So I would have signed him. I mean, I liked him at the time too, but that would have solved a lot of problems. But Duke, answering your question on the manager, I suppose, yeah, Joe Espada gets fired after, say, 2022 when the team doesn't win the World Series or something. And the guy I really fell in love with during the process that led to Pedro Griffal was actually not someone who was that widespread of a candidate. I don't think he'll ever be a manager, but Kevin Long of the Phillies, their hitting coach, I just read so many interviews with him and watched so many videos about him. And just the, the, I know Pedro Grafal talks about preparation all the time, but the way that Kevin Long prepared for games and prepares his players for any sort of attack from the pitchers is just really admirable. I think it's a huge reason. I mean, of course, Bryce Harper and Kyle Schwarber are going to be hitting 30, 40 home runs anyway. But I still think it's a huge reason why the Phillies are getting so much performance out of those guys on the periphery, like the Brandon Marshes of the world. I, I attribute to Kevin Long. I think that going with an offensive-minded manager, I know I sound like, like a football fan right now, but going with someone who just really stresses power and is really great at preparation, you could just let Ethan Katz or whoever handle the pitching side, and I, I'd be fine with that. So Kevin Long is who I would have hired as manager. And so, yeah, and then just finishing up my roster, because like I said, there were quite a few moves I made after that initial offseason that I kind of rounded out what the team is and believe it or not i did get this all to work financially where it's the same exact payroll that the white Sox had in real life but yeah so kevin long's the manager i agree with jordan on the philosophy behind relievers i wouldn't i would have signed Hendricks. that's where we disagree i'm with duke on that but i would not have signed graveman or kelly or traded for deekman or any of that so what i'm spending my money on first is and you know i have to plug this in but joey gallo was a free agent this offseason the team needed – I have Jock Peterson still. I've re-signed him, but still need another corner outfielder with him in as a DH. So I don't care how much he fell off, fell off down the stretch this year for the Twins, and I don't think he even played in the playoffs for them. I'm still signing him. He still had an above-average season. You know what? You had the benefit of hindsight and still chose him. I can respect that. Thank you. I would have. I would have been all in on it at the time. Now that I have hindsight, I just don't think the numbers ended up – getting to where they would have needed to be for me personally, but you stood by him and I respect that. Right. And 
I, I would to be clear, I'm not signing him just some crazy contract. I'm signing him for the same thing the Twins gave him, like one year, eight million or whatever. He's basically who I'm signing instead of Ben And I don't think either of them would have been that great for the Sox this year, but and Gallo at least hit the home runs, and that's really all I was looking for. He still hit like twenty something, even though he missed some time. So that's one move. And then my other big move, and this kind of broke one of our rules. What I would have done is I would have offered Carlos Rodon the qualifying offer <clears throat> the year prior. And then ideally, instead of having a pitch on it, you just use that as leverage and sign him to a deal that is lucrative, but maybe not quite as lucrative as what the Yankees signed him to, knowing that if he doesn't sign it, he has to pitch in the QO and risk you know getting hurt and not getting the big contract. I don't know. It probably would have ended up being more than $100 million, which would have broken one of our ground rules. But even if you signed him to the exact contract the Yankees gave him, I still would match the same salary that the White Sox have because this is my last move. I don't have... My, my offense, basically, the additions are Gallo, Peterson, and Kim. And my staff still has been done because I kind of was cheap in other areas. So that's how I made it work. I know Rodon was not good in the slightest this year, but I think he'll be a lot better once he gets healthy. I don't really attribute that to anything but health. Like, I don't think it's going to be a bad contract for the Yankees when it's all said and done. Who knows? But the only other thing I wanted to do was instead of Rodon, this would have been cheaper. I really would have wanted to sign Kevin Gossman of the Blue Jays because Ethan Katz loves him. He's very dominant. He's he's an ace, but that breaks our rule. And the reason I broke with Rodon is because he at least was on the White Sox, so it felt somewhat realistic. But that's really my full team. There aren't that many changes compared to the real White Sox in terms of additions. It's really just more who I subtracted. But I think that this nucleus in a world where they stayed healthy and didn't start sucking would have been good with Rodon, Peterson, Gallo, and Hassan Kim. So that's kind of the way I did it. And that's why I feel like I, looking back at my exercise, I went so hard in on 2021, 2022, because by the time I got to 2023, I'm looking down the list. I'm like, well, you stunk, you stunk, you stunk, you stunk, you stunk. And I can't replace all of you. I can replace some of you here and there throughout the course of 2021, 2022. That's where like a guy like Schwarber comes in or then the one-year deals for Peterson. Um, I signed Eduardo Escobar for a couple of years because he had one good year in there. I think that's that was how I solved second base when Nick Madrigal disappeared. But by the time I got to 2023, I think Nick, you and I kind of came across the same issue. I couldn't change much. Like I picked guys who signed for shorter deals to maximize 2021-2022 because by the time I got to 2023, I don't care if I had $250 million I don't know how you replace Anderson, Moncada, Vaughn still not looking good. Grandal looking like a 34-year-old catcher. Giolito was just okay. Seas took a step back. Lynn was terrible. I guess you can replace that with Dane Dunning. Um, I don't know how you fix all of that. And that's where looking back and, and playing the hindsight argument with all of this, you you really had to maximize 2021, 2022. The window was a lot shorter than I think even we thought. I thought you, you probably felt like you had at least 2024 and then you're going to start closing it. You really only had two seasons at the end of the day with this team. And you did not do nearly enough as a franchise to maximize what was there. And you had the chance to. And I think a lot of lack of maximization came from things that we all kind of hesitated at points at the time. 
I think the Adam Eaton play deal is a great one. I think the multiple reliever deals, the middle relief pitcher deals, were flagged early on. And I think the lack of starting pitching depth was flagged. I think that's where you can maybe have maximized better those first two years we've been talking about. No matter how the three of us decided to attack it, I think we all ended up with better teams in terms of numbers. Just kind of shows like there was there was a better way. And it wasn't because we turned around and traded Yohan Moncada or we traded Tim Anderson. It's because we just mixed and matched and allocated money a little bit differently. And it was the the worry I think everybody had was that allocation, and it ended up being true. I think with, you know, kind of the biggest thing I took away from all this, you know, looking at hindsight and looking at how we kind of built our roster with the contracts we had signed, we really didn't find, and this is something that, great teams in baseball do considerably is we didn't find a way to manipulate arbitration enough. I don't, I really don't think we had enough players on the roster that we could play that game to where we'd be able to save money on a year to year to year basis, you know, especially with, uh, you know, our overseas signings, you know, we, we look at the contracts we gave Yomankata, Aloy Jimenez, Luis Robert type stuff like that, which I mean, like there's arguments that you can make, especially for like, Luis Roberts contract and you know even you know a Tim Anderson's contract different stuff like that but on a year-to-year basis you ended up spending more money because you signed those long-term contracts early instead of towing that line and playing the arbitration game a little bit more than we did you know because that's that's why I liked the Hunter Renfro signing for me personally as much as I did because he he just did another year of arbitration here in 2023 we could have played that game for a while and that would have been a that that would have solved right field. We would not have had to even think twice about right field had we had Hunter Renfro out there. He would have done everything we would have needed out there out of him, and we wouldn't have had to chance getting an Aloy Jimenez injured. We also wouldn't have had to sign these DHs to these really front loaded type contracts that never really panned out to be anything. You know what I mean? So I really think there was a way we could have manipulated this. You know, looking at it how we how we end up doing because you know you look at like you look at a team like the Rays, which is a, a team that you know a lot of people should pay attention to they manipulate arbitration you know and, and even and i know they don't have the world series success but you even look at like how the milwaukee brewers have been ran over the course of like the last like six seven years it's playing the arbitration game with a lot of those guys you know and you know i maybe i wouldn't piss off corbin burns the way they did but Regardless, I think uh, I think there's a way you can you can play that game. And, you know, there is an argument to be made, you know, on a on a broader scale that arbitration is something that should be looked down upon as far as like, you know, the players being affected by that. But when you're running a baseball team, you have to use all possible things to your advantage. And that's something that I feel like we really missed out on by taking the route that we did. So that that's really the big things that I looked at. Um, and with the Kimbrel trade, honestly, the biggest part of it, and it's a it's a shame what has happened to him since, but I did not want to trade Cody Hoyer. I think Cody Hoyer in our bullpen, obviously health, health is important, but man, he showed some dynamite stuff. And even when he has been healthy for the Cubs, he, he it's there, you know, it's a real shame what's happened with him injury wise, but that would have had that would have saved us from having to make any of those bullpen moves. We we would have had a lockdown guy at the back end. We know whether or not he was a closer or not. Having Hoyer hand the baseball to Liam Hendricks from the eighth to the ninth instead of 
getting a little too aggressive and trading for a guy who obviously didn't want to pitch in the eighth inning, all things considered, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what that was all about, especially when you're trying to win a world series. But um, that's another one that really sticks with me. I mean, it, like I said, we don't know what Cody Hoyer's arm would have been probably would have still gotten injured, but with what the talent you saw at the time, that was the toughest part of that trade for me by a long shot. I am on record saying that I was more upset about losing Hoyer in that trade than Madrigal. I think we're all kind of on that same boat. I think you look back at the totality of these past three years, I think that move and then the Dunning-Lynn trade are easily the ones where you have the most flexibility to say, could we have done something differently? I think at the time we all liked the Kimbrough one. But this is a hindsight argument as well. And I think the reality is, as much as we liked it, it leaned into what was a very, very bad trend for the White Sox in the two years where it mattered most, and that was spending exorbitant amounts of money on the bullpen. Because that was something that, and this is to bring in full circle, that was something that Tony LaRusso prioritized as a manager, was a strong bullpen strong relief guys being able to win in the bullpen. And that's fine. If you have enough money to spend elsewhere. And if those guys end up being worth their contracts that they're paid nowadays, you put yourself in a situation, you you bought into what your manager's philosophy was at that time. And it, it goes to show just how powerful that philosophy can be because they bought in. And at a certain point, we crossed a threshold of now we've spent too much money here. We can't address other problems. And now you get to play the hindsight game of, well, here's how we would have done it differently. I think all of us subtracted some sort of money from the bullpen one way or another. Not everyone went as rogue as I did, but it's a, it's another acknowledgement of how important that first managerial hire was truly at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm with you guys on Hoyer, too. I'm, I'm also on the record of being more upset about losing him than Madrigal. But to their credit, the injury risk is part of the reason they wanted to trade him, I believe. So I guess that's one thing the White Sox do deserve kudos for. But yeah, overall, I mean, we've talked a lot about the bullpen and, and the allocation, resource allocation. And what you should do, I think, is every offseason, you should ask your pitching coach, hey, who, who are two guys that might be, you know, 40-man roster casualties or just guys that aren't that valuable right now that you like, like a Gregory Santos, for example, hint, hint, and say, hey, we're going to trade cash for this guy or, you know, trade a lottery ticket. That's where these trades are. That, a lot of the time, that's where these good relievers come from. Like the guy we just claimed from the Rangers, Alex uh, Spears, I think was his last name. He throws like 101. And I mean, he could be a classic case of throws hard, doesn't know where it's going. But at least getting guys like him in the organization, I'll, I'll take that every day over spending eight, nine million dollars a year on, you know, Kendall Graven or Joe Kelly, which they weren't even like necessarily terrible. It's just that it's not a great way to build a team like you guys are saying. All right. So this is my nuclear bomb here. So I I I I'm not a giant math guy. All right. I, I can fully admit that. So when I was doing this and I was kind of building my roster, I could say that like while I don't have exact numbers of how this all would have worked out, I feel pretty confident about where I cut money out and saved it in other ways to be able to get to where I'm at right now. So obviously in this past off season, we signed Andrew Benintendi to 
a big contract, you know, um, with, with the fact that I've, I've Renfro in right field, we don't have to see a ton of Andrew Vaughn this way. So Andrew Vaughn gets to kind of play in the shadows and still gets to play off on this idea that he's one of the best hitting prospects in all of baseball, you know, because we never really got a, nobody got a full view of him, you know, and while maybe not one of the best hitting prospects in all of baseball, but somebody that this team happened to like and Gavin Sheets also didn't get as many opportunities, but is a guy that's seen around the league as a potential solid starter. You could have cheap playing first base with a big lefty bat team that liked both of these players a lot was the Oakland A's because I've stashed Andrew Vaughn and the opinion of him is pretty high around the league still. And I haven't spent money on Andrew Benatendi. I find a way to pull a trigger on sending Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets. And remember, this is, this isn't with what we know about these two. Now, this is what with this with us building the aura, like a lot of other teams do with their prospects. When they protect them, we build the aura behind them. We send him to Oakland. We grab Sean Murphy and we sign him to the exact deal he signed with Atlanta because we could afford it because we never signed Andrew Benintendi and we still have a right fielder in Hunter Renfro. I think this is where you turn off the PS4. As great as it sounds in theory, I don't think Vaughn and Sheets would have ever gotten it done, personally. I think that was just stuff that was talked about a lot. And I just genuinely... like Because the players, they got back were young, not totally young, but younger pitching. Like, I don't feel like they turned around and said, hey, we really needed an Andrew Vaughn-type player. Like, what they clearly prioritized was not a Vaughn-type player in that trade. That's where I feel like maybe rumors came out. I don't think it ever would have gotten done, and I thought about it too. I was like, hmm, let me look at that trade, because Murphy's a good example of a guy to... um target in that case because you knew he was getting traded i just don't think vaughn i don't think the Sox ever could have gotten it done personally to defend duke a little bit here i do think that from a pure value standpoint i'm not saying Oakland would accept it for the reasons you just said jordan but from a pure value standpoint one or two years ago i think vaughn and sheets for murphy if you add a little bit to that like add like a christian mena or you know a couple of young pitchers who aren't terrible from the Sox system I think that at least is somewhat fair. Maybe wouldn't get accepted for the reasons you said, but value-wise, Andrew Vaughn once had a lot of trade value, at least in my opinion, mm-hmm. and now doesn't. So I, I see the logic behind it. I also wonder how it's like, because it's hard, because they traded him this past offseason. I wonder how, yeah, kind of to your point, Duke, I wonder if you could have convinced them to trade Murphy a season earlier, and then Vaughn has some of that value. I just don't think if you're talking about like, I traded him before the 2023 season. I just don't think they would have ever got. Well, I, my, my entire thing is stashing Vaughn. Like that is, I, I want Vaughn to get minimal major league at bats. I want him to show a little bit of promise when he's in there. Cause you got to remember, we still have Jose Abreu on the roster and he's the guy that's going to play every day at first base and outside of first base. I don't want Andrew Vaughn anywhere in the lineup because Aloy can hit against righties and lefties. You know, and I think uh, obviously my plan of Jake Berger being more involved at the potential future of first base also comes into play here. Um, so you have kind of like that power hitting first baseman, whereas a guy like Andrew Vaughn is somebody that if if he had, has has not seen as many major league at bats, 
with where his draft type was, with what he did with Team USA. Like, there was a lot of hype around Andrew Vaughn. I mean, it was just we us drafting him with where we were at first base with the amount of draft capital we had already put at first base. That's why that pick made no sense for us, but they, he was very highly respected around the league. I mean, that value's pretty dead now because we've gotten to see enough major league at bats at him. But I think if you find a way to stash him and, you know, kind of, kind of Nick with your, with your idea as well. Like I'm not just saying those two alone, like you obviously got to sweeten that deal a little bit. And even, um, you know, with all with those starting pitchers I was talking about, the potential starting pitchers who maybe didn't either pan out or make it to the major league level, or even like a Garrett Crochet, if we were able to stash him in the minors for a minute too, he could possibly be part of that deal as well. Because we we knew at even even heading out of 2021, even with how well Grandall played down the stretch for us, we were all a little concerned about the injuries. Like there there so, something had to be addressed somewhere in there with that and that was always the issue with with Yaz he he could get hot it's just him staying healthy and playing through injuries to stay in a hot streak was kind of where we ended up getting bit so I that that's really where my idea comes I know that's I know it's a little bit on the tinfoil side but that's that's the side I like to kind of uh, stay on just because I think I think some of these major league general managers get a little ahead of themselves. I think they get a little bit caught up with what they see on paper compared to what they see in actual game time action. And I really do think having power hitting guys in Oakland, which, you know, I know you said that's something they didn't prioritize in that trade, but historically they prioritize guys that they can hold on to for a while and play the arbitration game with, because then they don't have to pay. And I think that would fit perfectly into their mold of what they wanted. Plus they would be able to have, a guy coming off the bench in Gavin Sheets or which is something that had been proposed early on in his career. You could potentially see what Andrew Vaughn could do at third base with Gavin Sheets playing first. It's, it's, it's Oakland dude. They're, they're just trying to get players on the field that are youngish that will hopefully get fans into the stadium. That is like the worst in all of major sports and they don't have to pay him a lot of money. So that that's just really where my thought process it was on it. And I, I just I think with what you're looking at with the Sean Murphy contract, with what we paid Ben Attendi, it actually works out way too well because it's nearly identical and we would be set behind behind home plate for the foreseeable future. And that would really help us in being able to prolong this window. Cause I'm a big I like going kinda all in. Oh like sometimes, but I'm really big about like if we can stay in the hunt for a longer period of time without going completely all in, we might be able to just sneak one out. Cause I think there's a lot of teams that can pull off that, uh, that idea of it. You know, I, I think, I think completely going all in and just heading straight towards the rebuild uh, because it didn't work out is kind of how we ended up to where we were. So I, I've, I, I feel pretty, pretty confident with how this roster ended up going. Now we all have to go back to reality. Yeah, it's like, what, what was the point of that exercise? Now I'm sitting here, I'm like, well, all right, that was fun. None of that happened, though. So get ready for whatever they're going to give us this offseason. Like, that, that's just, I was sitting there as you were talking about that. I'm like, yeah, this all sounds really good. Oh, well, oh, well. Um, we got to talk about whatever they're going to give us to talk about this offseason, though. But that was fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, no, I, I noticed none of us traded for Salvador Perez. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> and Whit Merrifield didn't end up on any of the teams either. Duke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. All right. And I, I never never said what I was doing at second base once Magical was gone. 
But no. Anyway, no. <laughs> we, we got to stop before we go completely off the rails. Um, that was therapeutic, at least. Gave us a little bit of perspective about what we would have done as we sat on our couches. So it's always nice to kind of get that perspective, um, especially as, you know, we're knee deep in football season watching the Chicago Bears. And uh, I know I've been couch coaching like a mofo. So it's kind of nice to do it with the White Sox as well. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have this week. And maybe this month for the Sox on 35th podcast. It might be a little bit before you hear from us again. Um, we have the offseason coming up. Obviously, uh, we don't have any playoff baseball to cover, unfortunately. Um, it may be used to that. So uh, we're going to kind of play it by ear. Hopefully see uh, the White Sox make some moves in the coming weeks. Um, you know, I know hopefully we have an exciting winter meetings this year, whether it's completely tearing it down or fooling ourselves that we're going to do anything next year. But, you know, it's – Regardless, we will be there along the way. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening this season. We very much appreciate it. And um, until next time, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website, SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th. Stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. We will see you on the other side as we cover another exciting week, month, year, eternity, um, factory of sadness of White Sox baseball. Thank you, and go Sox! Thanks for the support, folks. Enjoy the playoffs. Go Sox. Yep, thank you so much for listening all season. Go Sox.